This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott, your host for another hour of mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. Along the way, trying to better educate the general public about mental health-related issues, as well as reducing the stigma associated with mental illness. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Well, welcome. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast pre-recorded for airing the week of August 22nd. Hope that you've been feeling well recently and we're going to start tonight's podcast with some information that gives us new insights into the direct connections uh, between the brain and the rest of the body and how we respond to stress. Later in the podcast, going to have an article that gets directly to the heart of why it's so important to combat stigma associated with mental illness and what consequences that stigma can have. But first, new insights into how the mind influences the body. This is very interesting and exciting work. Neuroscientists at the University of Pittsburgh have identified the neural networks that connect the cerebral cortex, <clears throat> that's the uh, outer part of the brain, to the adrenal glands medulla, which is responsible for the body's rapid response in stressful situations. Uh, although you've heard of the flight, the fight or flight response, uh, which is triggered by hormones secreted by that part of the adrenal gland. Now these findings were reported in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And the findings of the study provide evidence for the neural basis of the mind-body connection. Specifically, the findings shed light on how stress, depression, and other mental states can alter organ function and show that there is a real anatomical basis for psychosomatic illness. The research also provides a concrete neural substrate that may help explain why meditation and certain exercises such as yoga and Pilates can be so helpful in modulating the body's responses to physical, mental, and emotional stress. In their experiments, the scientists traced the neural circuitry that links areas of the cerebral cortex to the adrenal medulla, which is the inner part of the adrenal gland, 
and your adrenal glands are located on the top of each kidney. Now, the scientists were surprised by the sheer number of neural networks that they uncovered. Other investigators had suspected that one or perhaps two areas of the cerebral cortex might be responsible for the control of the adrenal medulla, but the actual number and location of these cortical areas were uncertain. The laboratory doing this study used a unique tracing method that involves the rabies virus. This approach is capable of revealing long chains of interconnected brain cells. Using this approach, researchers demonstrated that the control of the adrenal medulla originates from multiple areas of the cerebral cortex. According to the new findings, the biggest influences arise from the motor areas of the cerebral cortex and from other cortical areas involved in cognition and affect. Well, why is this important? Why does it matter which areas of the cerebral cortex influence the adrenal medulla? We know that acute responses to stress include a wide variety of changes. Your heart is pounding and racing, you're sweating, your pupils dilate. These responses help the body prepare for action and are characterized as the aforementioned fight-or-flight responses. Many situations in modern life call for a more thought-out reaction than simple fight-or-flight, and it is clear that we have some cognitive control, or what neuroscientists call top-down control, over our responses to stress. Because we have a cortex, we have options. If someone insults you, you don't have to punch them or flee. You might have a more nuanced response and ignore the insult or make a witty comeback. These options are part of what the cerebral cortex provides. Another surprising result was that the motor areas in the cerebral cortex involved in the planning and performance of movement provide a substantial input to this area of the adrenal gland. One of these areas is a portion of the primary motor cortex that is concerned with the control of axial body movement and posture. This input to the adrenal medulla may explain why core body exercises are so helpful in modulating responses to stress. Calming practices such as Pilates, yoga, Tai Chi, and even dancing in a small space all require proper skeletal alignment coordination and flexibility. The study also revealed that the areas of the cortex that are active when we sense conflict or are aware that we have made an error are a source of influence over the adrenal medulla. This observation raises the possibility that activity in these cortical areas when you reimagine an error or beat yourself up 
over a mistake or think about a traumatic event results in descending signals, in other words, from the brain down to the adrenal that influence the adrenal medulla in just the same way that the actual event would. <clears throat> These anatomical findings therefore have relevance for therapies that deal with post-traumatic stress or even just people who tend to ruminate over past mistakes or difficult life events, which is extremely common in states of depression. Now, additional links with the adrenal medulla were discovered in cortical areas that are active during mindful meditation in areas that show changes in bipolar familial depression. One way of summarizing the results is that these researchers may have uncovered the stress and depression connection. Overall, these results indicate that circuits exist to link movement, cognition, and affect, that is thinking and mood, to the function of the adrenal medulla and the control of stress. This circuitry may mediate the effects of internal states like chronic stress and depression on organ function and thus provide a concrete neural substrate for some psychosomatic illness. Pretty fascinating stuff when you consider uh, not only did they find that these connections between the cerebral cortex and the adrenal medulla are directly responsible for the uh, body's response to stress, the fight or flight response, but when you consider that they also implicate the exact same pathways in the mechanism of stress-reducing behavior, like mindfulness meditation, yoga, tai chi, and even Pilates. Uh, very exciting, interesting things. Uh, hopefully this will give more people confidence that therapies like mindfulness meditation and yoga and others are the real deal that these are not just fringe therapies uh, touted by devotees who uh, don't have any scientific basis for promoting them. Uh, this adds to the growing amount of hard science documenting the benefits of these therapies. And so this should actually give more people confidence to try them or those who are already doing uh, these therapies to continue doing it because it's going to be very good for their health and a great way to counteract the body's normal stress response. All right, well, next up on psychiatry today, we're going to stick with uh, clues in the body to elucidating psychiatric disorders. And this time, scientists have done some brain scans that reveal how a genetic mutation appears to be linked to major psychiatric disorders and how that affects the structure, function, and chemistry of the brain. 
The study offers further clues about how this genetic mutation increases the risk of several different disparate psychiatric disorders, including schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression. Experts say the findings could help in the quest for new treatments. Researchers led by the University of Edinburgh scan the brains of people that have a specific genetic mutation that causes part of one chromosome to swap places with another. The mutation results in disruption of a gene called DISC-1, which is associated with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and recurrent major depression. Well, we'll take a commercial break here, and when we come back, we'll discuss more about the implications of finding this genetic mutation and have other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare. Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all the latest mental health-related news. And we're talking about a study showing how a specific gene mutation is linked to several major psychiatric disorders. Researchers found that people with this genetic mutation had actual changes in the structure of their brain. 
these changes were linked with the severity of their symptoms of mental illness. They also showed that carriers of the mutation had lower levels of a chemical called glutamate in certain areas of their brain. Reduced glutamate levels have been strongly linked with schizophrenia in previous studies. It should also be noted here, while the article didn't mention it, I'll mention that ketamine, which has gotten so much press lately about the rapid response to intravenous ketamine in treating depression, works on the glutamate pathway. However, uh, it also has potentially very serious side effects, including uh, causing psychosis and hallucinations. And so, in my opinion, all the enthusiasm, enthusiasm about it has to be tempered uh, until scientists can find a version of the drug that will help alleviate depression quickly without those risks. And I will say uh, that scientists at the National Institutes of Mental Health are working on that as we speak. Researchers say the findings in this study confirm that this mutation in this DISC-1 gene is associated with a significantly increased risk of psychiatric illness. They hope that continuing to study people with the mutation will reveal new insights to the biological mechanisms that underpin these conditions. This mutation in the DISC-1 gene was first identified in a Scottish family that showed unusually high rates of major psychiatric disorders. Scientists have been studying generations of the family for 40 years, but this is the first time they have scanned their brains. The study is published in the journal Schizophrenia, which is a partner journal to Nature, and it was funded by the Translational Medicine Research Collaboration. The study confirms and extends the genetics of the DISC-1 gene and shows how that and similar genetic effects can increase the risk of major mental illnesses. Well, I think the take-home point here is that if scientists can uh, continue to narrow down what are the genetic links and causes of mental illness, then that's going to hopefully bring us one step closer to much better treatments than what we have now. Next up on psychiatry today, have you had any of your loved ones spend time in an intensive care unit recently? Or have you yourself spent time in an intensive care anytime recently? Well, a meta-analysis of reports on more than 4,000 patients suggests that almost one in three people discharged from hospital intensive care units or ICUs has clinically important and persistent symptoms of depression. That, according to researchers at Johns Hopkins Medicine. In some patients, the symptoms can last for a year or more. And they are notably more likely in people with a history 
of psychological distress before the ICU stay. The prevalence of depressive symptoms in this population described in the September issue of the journal Critical Care Medicine is three to four times that of the general population. Not only can people with depression have slower physical recovery, but they also experience financial strain because they often cannot return to work and their caregivers must stay at home with them. Psychological symptoms occurring before an ICU stay and psychological distress experienced during the ICU stay or hospitalization were risk factors most associated with depressive symptoms after hospital discharge. It's very clear that ICU survivors have physical, cognitive, and psychological problems that greatly impair their reintegration into society, return to work, and being able to take on previous roles in life. If patients are talking about the ICU being stressful, or they're having unusual memories, or feeling down, we should take that seriously. Healthcare providers, family members, and caregivers should pay attention to those symptoms and make sure they're not glossed over. More than 5 million patients in the United States are admitted to ICUs each year. For this study, the investigators searched five electronic databases to look for studies of depression after ICU stays that were conducted from 1970 through March 13th of 2015. Studies <clears throat> included in this research evaluated survivors older than 16 and assessed for depressive symptoms after hospital discharge. Ultimately, the investigators focused on 42 reports composed of 4,113 patients who were assessed for depressive symptoms generally between 1 and 12 months after ICU discharge. The studies included male and female patients of varying ages. 14 studies were conducted in the United Kingdom and 10 were conducted in the United States. The most common measurement of depressive symptoms in 22 of the studies was the depression subscale of the hospital anxiety and depression scale, a questionnaire that researchers commonly use to assess anxiety and depression. The depression subscale determines the level of depressive symptoms a person is experiencing based on a 0 to 21 score, with a score of 0 to 7 being normal, 8 to 10 being mild, and 11 or greater being moderate to severe. Next, they combined data from the studies, taking into account variations in the seven different measures of depressive symptoms used, and created a pooled 
prevalence of depressive symptoms statistic. Third, they calculated the change in the average depression scores on the hospital and anxiety depression scale and depressive symptom prevalence between two months to six months and then from six to 12 months after discharge. The prevalence of depressive symptoms across all studies ranged from 4% to 64%. The pooled prevalence of a hospital anxiety and depression scale greater than or equal to 8 representing at least mild depressive symptoms was 29% 2 to 3 months after discharge, 34% 6 months after discharge, and 29% 12 to 14 months after discharge. The pooled prevalence of hospital anxiety and depression scale greater than or equal to 11 representing moderate to severe depressive symptoms was 17% 2 to 3 months following discharge, 17% 6 months after discharge, and 13% 12 to 14 months after discharge. There was no significant change in the prevalence of depressive symptoms during the first 12 months after discharge, in indicating persistence of symptoms during this time period. Psychological symptoms that persisted before ICU stays were strongly associated with depressive symptoms after ICU discharge, as was the presence of psychological distress symptoms experienced in the ICU or hospital, including anger, nervousness, and acute stress symptoms, such as emotional detachment or flashbacks. By contrast, patient age, severity of illness, ICU or hospital length of stay, and duration of sedation were not associated with depressive symptoms. Depressive symptoms were correlated with greater anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms and with worse quality of life. <clears throat> Physical rehabilitation after hospital discharge was assessed in three of the studies reviewed and found to be potentially beneficial. Use of an ICU diary assessed in two studies was not associated with significant reduction in depressive symptoms, nor was a nurse-led ICU follow-up clinic assessed in one study. Identifying patients with a pre-existing psychological comorbidity and psychological distress symptoms in the hospital may help maximize identification of depression and early intervention efforts. And given the strong relationship of depression with anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms after critical illness, patients who screen positive for depression should be evaluated for a full spectrum of psychological symptoms. But the researchers cautioned that in this study, depressive symptoms were assessed 
using questionnaires in all but two studies, most of which have not been rigorously evaluated for their performance in ICU survivors. We'll talk more about the implications of this study when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, neuropsychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about a study showing that one in three former intensive care unit patients shows symptoms of depression. Uh, right before the break, we were going over limitations of the study. Another one was that the existing data don't clarify a very important issue, whether depressive symptoms are a result of the critical illness or if post-ICU stay depressive symptoms mainly reflect illness before the ICU admission or are a result of hospitalization. But the main point is that people who have pre-existing problems are particularly vulnerable to suffering from depression, which really comes as no surprise. Uh, The take-home message is that If you or someone close to you has been in the intensive care unit recently uh, or is there now, 
uh, then they need to be monitored closely for depression and make sure they get appropriate treatment for it, especially if they have a previous history of depression. <clears throat> now, this next article pertains to people who have partners who have depression. So if your partner, your spouse, suffers from depression, you need to pay attention to this next item. It found that chronic pain is linked to partners of people with depression. Partners of people with depression are more likely to suffer from chronic pain, according to new research. The study shows that these two conditions share common causes, some of which are genetic, while other causes originate from the environment that partners share. Experts say their findings shed new light on the illnesses and could one day help to develop better diagnostic tests and treatments. Researchers led by the University of Edinburgh studied information from more than 100,000 people taking part in large nationwide health studies. The team analyzed people's genetic background as well as details about their experiences of pain and depression. Findings revealed that chronic pain was caused by someone's genetic makeup and partly by as yet unidentified risk factors that are shared jointly by partners or spouses. They also identified significant overlaps between the risk factors for chronic pain and depression. Chronic pain is a common cause of disability, but little is known about what causes it. Scientists say the research will bring a new understanding of why some people suffer from the condition and not others. The research used data from the Generation Scotland and UK Biobank projects major studies investigating genetic links to health conditions. And the study was published in the journal PLOS Medicine. Scientists hope their research will encourage people to think about the relationship between chronic pain and depression and whether physical and mental illnesses are as separate as some believe. That, of course, is an important point. However, uh, I think I would like to expand on these connections between these two, two conditions a little bit. In my way of thinking about it, someone who has a partner who suffers from depression is themselves under a lot of stress. Uh, they're probably worried about their partner who isn't feeling well, for one thing, uh, and themselves sad that their partner is not feeling well, but uh, they also may be burdened with having to care for their partner who uh, is not as capable of caring for themselves as they otherwise would be were they not be depressed. And they might also be under stress from having to carry more of the load as far as household duties, 
maintaining things financially, what have you, because of their partner's depression and their partner uh, showing a lack of capability in those areas. Uh, therefore, for all those reasons, someone who has a partner who has depression is himself under a lot of stress, and the chronic pain syndrome may simply be one manifestation of this added stress, uh, because we know that stress causes increased circulation of inflammatory proteins uh, generated as a result of the stress hormone cortisol, and we talked about that earlier in the podcast, right, where uh, scientists see direct connections between the cerebral cortex when we're under stress and the adrenal medulla, which produces these stress hormones. So when you have increased circulation in the blood of the stress hormones, that causes increased circulation of inflammatory proteins. And these, if they accumulate in the joints, can cause pain, uh, not just in the joints, but elsewhere in the body as well. So that may very well be the direct connection uh, between stress in general, including stress from having a partner who's depressed and having chronic pain. Um, so the, the article doesn't propose solutions. Um, there are many potential solutions to this issue, uh, attacking the problem by ensuring that your partner gets the appropriate treatment for depression that they need, by taking appropriate care of yourself uh, while helping care for your depressed partner, not neglecting your own self-care, uh, such as getting enough sleep enough physical activity, eating well, and having enough leisure time. Again, uh, understood that this may be easier said than done when caring for a partner who is depressed. Lastly, therapy can be very helpful. Uh, support groups for caregivers um, may be available depending on uh, what's going on in your community, and that can also be helpful. Next up on Psychiatry Today, I mentioned before that I was going to be presenting you an article that got directly to the heart of why stigma about mental illness can have such a negative impact. Um, <clears throat> the study is about ethnic differences in the mentally ill when hospitalized in Ontario, Canada. However, it serves as a very vivid illustration of how stigma about mental illness in general, and in this case in a particular community, can lead to far worse outcomes in mental illness than uh, would otherwise be the case. So it turns out that Chinese and South Asian patients in Ontario, Canada experience more severe mental illness at the time of hospital admission than other patients. That, according to a new study that examined the association between illness severity and ethnicity. <clears throat> the study was published earlier this month in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. 
and it represents the largest and most rigorous examination of mental illness severity among Asian populations living in a Western country. They found that when compared to patients from other populations, Chinese and South Asian patients were on average much sicker by the time they got to the hospital. The Chinese and South Asian people make up the two largest ethnic minority groups in Canada. Using a database that houses information on adult inpatients in designated mental health beds across all Ontario hospitals, the research team analyzed information on over 133,000 patients hospitalized for psychiatric conditions such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression between 2006 and 2014. To determine mental illness severity, the team looked at four measures, involuntary admissions, aggressive behaviors, and the number and frequency of psychotic symptoms, including hallucinations, delusions, and abnormal thought processes. Their analysis shows that involuntary admissions were much more common among these ethnic minority groups, with Chinese patients being 80% and South Asian patients being 31% more likely to be admitted involuntarily. Involuntary hospitalization is an important indicator of illness severity because it typically means that the illness has progressed to the point where both safety and an individual's insight into the impact of their illness are of concern. Study authors hypothesize that stigma and family dynamics could be factors influencing why Chinese or South Asian people might delay treatment for mental illness. While Asian people tend to have strong family support, they may also be more likely to experience stigma. Families may try to cope and keep the illness within the family until there is no choice but to go to the hospital. Reducing stigma and augmenting culturally sensitive mental health services could help reach people sooner. Both Chinese and South Asian patients were significantly younger than patients from other populations being hospitalized and were more likely to experience one or more psychotic symptoms. With 55% of Chinese and 49% of South Asian patients exhibiting at least one psychotic symptom, compared to 38% of other populations with these diagnoses. While the experience of immigration is often linked to the development and severity of mental illness, this study showed, well, actually we'll take a break here and we'll come back with the rest of that after that. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? 
and what is the best place to go for the care that is needed. We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. All right, welcome back to Psychiatry Today. (laughs) Admittedly, at the end of the last segment, I had to interrupt myself and uh, wasn't keeping track of the end of the segment. So just to backtrack a little bit, I was talking about a study showing that certain ethnic groups in Ontario, Canada, have a much worse outcome in terms of the severity of mental illness when they first get treated. And the scientists think this has to do with stigma around mental illness in those ethnic groups. Uh, now just to recap a little bit, there were Chinese and South Asian patients. Uh, both these groups were much younger than patients from other populations being hospitalized, more likely to experience one or more psychotic symptoms, with 55% of Chinese and 49% of South Asian patients exhibiting at least one psychotic symptom, compared to 38% of other populations with these diagnoses. And... While the experience of immigration is often linked to the development and severity of mental illness, this study showed similar severity in both immigrants and Canadian-born patients of Chinese and South Asian descent, suggesting that ethnicity itself is a predictor. Like any other health condition, the longer mental illness goes without treatment, the more difficult it can be to get people back on track. That's the main take-home point here. The study highlights that ethnicity and culture are factors that should be considered when developing outreach strategies and treatment approaches, particularly at earlier stages before a patient's illness worsens and hospitalization becomes necessary. Why? Because of the strong 
stigma against any kind of mental health treatment in these populations. And indeed, the stigma against uh, dealing with mental illness whatsoever. Uh, the issue here is that when you have uh, strong taboos against mental illness and mental health treatment um, in these uh, ethnic groups, then what's going to happen uh, is they're going to delay treatment and uh, by the time they finally show up to get help, then uh, they're going to be much more severe. So again, the take-home point of this study, as far as I'm concerned, is it's a, it's a vivid illustration, okay, using the example of uh, ethnic groups, of showing that how stigma in general, whether it's because of uh, culture, ethnicity, or other factors, has a very negative influence on mental illness. Uh, <clears throat> the stigma across the board as far as culture and ethnicity res results in delays in treatment. And therefore, uh, the longer you wait to get help, the more severe the illness gets, the more difficult it becomes to help someone get back to their normal state. Uh, and that is the negative impact of stigma. In this case, it's illustrated by stigma among a certain uh, ethnic group or groups. Uh, but again, it can happen across the board, um, any nationality, uh, ethnic, or cultural group. Next up on psychiatry today, work productivity. Is that potentially a key factor in assessing to what extent a patient with depression has recovered from their illness. While medications can quickly reduce depressive symptoms, monitoring work productivity can provide unique insight into whether a patient will require additional treatments to achieve long-term remission from depression. This new study, which found that to be the case, found that while medications increased work productivity of most participants, but that those whose work productivity increased more quickly showed more significant reduction in their depression symptoms and were more likely to recover over the long term. The findings, therefore, suggest that patients treated for depression and who are still having work productivity issues may need additional treatments such as exercise or cognitive behavioral therapy to overcome depression over the long term. The study was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry and it gives new insight to specific aspects of depression that are not commonly evaluated including work productivity, cognitive function, and motivation. These insights, in turn, provide added urgency for doctors to personalize treatment beyond simply prescribing antidepressants to accelerate the path to recovery. 
The study adds to growing evidence of the need for comprehensive treatment approaches for depression and the importance of improving cognitive function, including motivation, energy, and concentration. Among depression symptoms, energy and concentration are most strongly associated with work productivity outcomes. Those who do not show early improvement in work productivity are a different group of patients than those who do. A proportion of patients may need additional treatment to augment the medication, from psychotherapy and telephone-based coaching to physical exercise. All treatments that research has shown can help reduce depression symptoms. Scientists intend to conduct future studies in which doctors alter treatments in a timely manner to address motivation, concentration, and work productivity with the goal of improving success rates. Finding the precise formula that works for each patient will be a key part of future research, tailoring treatment for the individual patient. One size does not fit all. The study tracked work productivity and depression symptoms in 331 patients with major depression through intervals of six weeks, three months, and seven months after they started medication. Doctors have previously focused on reducing depression symptoms and assumed that work improvement would indirectly follow without additional targeted interventions. At six weeks, patients were divided into three groups according to how much their work productivity changed since taking medication. Those who showed robust early improvement at the office, those with minimal change, and others who remained highly impaired. Patients in the first two groups started the trial at similar levels in depression severity and work productivity, though the robust early improvement group had markedly lower levels of depression at both the three and seven month intervals compared with the other two groups, those with robust early improvement in work productivity were three to five times more likely to achieve full remission of depression symptoms. I think it is rather remarkable that the researchers found there hasn't already been a lot of attention paid to this issue. Uh, there are <coughs> many studies and have been for many years now looking at the issue of how depression affects work. There is the concept of presenteeism. This is opposed to absenteeism uh, where people are out of work sick. Uh, the concept of presenteeism is that someone with depression may physically be at the workplace but because of their depressive symptoms they're not performing up to their normal capability 
and that affects productivity in a negative way, even though the employee is there at the workplace. Uh, so it is very important that this study points out that there is a difference between those who recover from depression with or without returning to their normal state of work productivity and that those who have done so represent a more full recovery whereas those who have not require extra treatment beyond just taking medication. And I think whether we're talking about restored work productivity or any symptoms, it's important to understand that while medication can be a very important part of recovery from depression, uh, certainly these other modalities need to be considered if that recovery isn't complete in all domains, uh, social, emotional, and occupational. Well, next up on psychiatry today, um, and lastly, I will leave you with an information about a uh, spice that may make you a better learner. Well, in any case, scientists found that cinnamon can make mice better learners. I know what you're saying, a rodent study, really? Well, again, uh, there's a lot of analogies between the basic structure of that brain and more advanced primate brains and uh, the most advanced like ours. And so, yes, there may be something to be learned from that. The study was in the July issue of the Journal of Neuroimmune Pharmacology. They found that feeding cinnamon to laboratory mice determined to have poor learning ability made the mice better learners. The key to this issue is the hippocampus, a small part of the temporal lobe of the brain that generates, organizes, and stores memory. This area in poor learners has less of a protein that's involved in memory of learning and more of a protein that generates inhibitory conductance in the brain compared to good learners. When the mice were fed cinnamon, it was metabolized into sodium benzoate, which is used as a drug treatment for brain damage, and this sodium benzoate increases the production of the protein that helps learning, decreases the production of the protein that interferes with it. So there you have it. For those of you who want to try it yourselves, cinnamon from Ceylon outdid cinnamon from China. Going to have to wrap up tonight's show quickly. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.